Welcome back to the Beer Tree Podcast. We have another episode, obviously, because that's what you're listening to right now. Today, uh, we got the one and only Tommy Arthur, brewmaster and one of the founders at Lost Abbey Brewing, which is in San Marcos, California. Uh, for those that don't know, San Marcos is North County, San Diego, a little bit inland from Carlsbad. Uh, and Lost Abbey is Belgian-focused. Uh, they do dabble in some other styles as well. Uh, the hoppier side of things is port brewing, which does get confused with pizza port uh, for obvious reasons, but they all actually have the same founders. There's also Hop Concept, Tiny Bubbles, but Tommy will explain a little more about that in the interview uh, to clear that up a little bit. It seems complicated, but it's it's really not too confusing. Um, yeah, I'm not going to lie, I was pretty excited for this one. Uh, Lost Abbey's very well known. Tommy Arthur has been doing this for a long time, and uh, he's one of the, the bigger names in craft beer, so I was pretty pumped. Thank you to Jeff Bagby for the connection. Much appreciated. And uh, yeah, I think that's it for the intro. So let's go to the interview. Why don't we start with the, the easy stuff, your, your story and you know, where this all began for you to, 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 to boot. where you are. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I went from, I graduated high school here in San Diego and I left to go to school in Flagstaff at Northern Arizona University. And when I was in school, um, 91 to 95, I met a friend, he and his dad were big into beer and they took me on a journey while I was in college and basically said, if you're going to drink beer in college, you need to drink better beer. So I was uh, kind of pushed away from macro beer land and uh, spent four years in college chasing really great beer. Uh, as part of my graduation present in uh, January of 95, they gave it to me about six months early before graduation. They bought me a homebrew kit and uh, that was my first foray into brewing. So graduated in June of 1995, a degree in hand uh, English. So I was supposed to be a teacher and moved back to San Diego and uh, found a brewing job about nine months after that. So I've been in the brewing business since March of 96. Okay. And that was really, I mean, you really came back kind of as everything was yeah. here, around here. I mean, Stone, I think, officially was 97. Uh, even earlier, 90, middle middle 95-ish. Okay. Um, yeah, there was quite a bit of stuff that happened in San Diego in 95. We had uh, Coronado, we had Ballast Point, we had Alesmith, Stone, uh, they all kind of got their start, and then there was a bunch of other things that happened along that 96, 97 timeline, uh, including Pizza Port opening their second location. Um, but if you really look at where this scene came from, it blew up in the mid-90s. And then uh, some breweries, um, like Cerveza Rio La Cruda, where I went to work originally, opened and closed. There were a lot of openings and closings, but uh, that first real bloom came in, like, 96, 97. Okay. So you're, you were at the place well, – Cervecerias La Cruda, it means the okay. hangover brewery in Spanish. Okay. Um, yeah, it was a very interesting concept and uh, not one that succeeded. So I was there for about nine months. Um, started helping them build out the space in March of 96 and was gone by, I guess it was May of, May of 96 and was gone by March of 97. Okay. So officially, like the place opened and closed in less than a year. Yeah. Uh, classic sense of no cash, no cash flow, things like that. Yeah, and not the time period where there is a brewery on every corner in every neighborhood and it certainly looks nothing like san diego does now and yeah. even other parts of this country yeah it was uh i don't remember what number license we were in town but we were pretty early to the game yeah and uh 
sometimes the uh, the earliest people take the most uh, most bullets. Yeah, there's. I mean, the you know New Albion and those places are the the most famous names. Sometimes are really weren't around that long, or the ones that kind of paved the way. Yeah, a little bit. The the legacy of Cerveceria La Cruda is that I'm still making beer and. Every so often we get to talk about the fact that it existed. Um, while I was not the head brewer at the time, um, I, you know, I was part of the brewing team and I was one of two. Um, but without, you know, without things like this and podcasts and interviews and things, we wouldn't be having conversations about a brewery that went out of business, you know, a long time ago. Yeah. And no uh, Instagram or Facebook back then to... Yeah, not a lot of capture, right? Yeah. You know, photos are archived and things like that. You know, everything was on, on film and you'd have to scan stuff and uh, it's... Uh, yeah, it's not that easy to pull up digital records. Yeah, different time. So after that, um, once that closed, then you were a little later on. It wasn't immediate, right, that you went to Pizza Port? No, I ended up actually going and working with uh, White Labs and uh, spent okay. a couple months working at White Labs with those guys um, before taking the job at Pizza Port. So I was lucky enough to um, meet Chris White and Lisa when they, they were building out the space. They were still doing a lot of the yeast growing at UCSD. Um, and they moved into a space over um, in Miramar, close to where they're at now. And that was more of a kind of a brewing position. I was sort of, I was kind of tasked with being a liaison to some of the brewers um, who maybe hadn't familiar with White Labs. I mean, back then it was mostly just Y East who was selling to people. Um, so a lot of the conversations were why, you know, what was different, what made this, you know, a great product and things like that. It was wasn't quite an endorser, but at the same time, I was really tasked with, you know, having real brewing conversations with people, you know, and about yeast. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, it's a very important part of beer, and I think I associate that even more so with beer, with Belgian styles, which obviously you are very familiar with. Yep. Um, but yeah, having that having that conversation that you can, instead of just being a salesperson, you can tell them what you know how this yeast yeah a lot of it was how, how it behaves ways. how to ferment it what temperatures stuff that you know kind of experiential stuff and it was it was a good way to it was a good way to come at it from a, a very a very simple place you know yeast is, is similar it depends on where you grow it and things like that but for the most part it's behavioral and so that was all about how how it wanted to behave okay so from there pizza port solana beach yeah, what a fun what a fun time that was. But uh, spent about nine years there. It was May of '97 to December of '05. Um, got a chance to you know get up and go to work every day a couple blocks from the beach. Um, yeah, it was it was a cool place to make beer. The people there had been uh, drinking beer for a few years. I think the first batches of beer were kind of put online in '92, '93. Um, so I came into an established facility, a place that really crushed through beer. Um, very small brewing system, little seven barrel system, but um, 11 different serving tanks, some good house recipes, including the original Swami's, Shark Bite Red, Old Boneyards, Barley Wine, and a clientele that uh, at that point was drinking pretty aggressively flavored, excuse me, aggressively flavored beers. Um, it was not a dumb it down brew pub experience. It was more like a let it rip kind of thing, which okay. was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, first time I'd actually been to the Solana Beach spot yesterday, been to a few other ones, not all of them, but um, it's a it's a trip right yeah yeah but it does have that you know all the different spots have that same vibe yeah same it's it's got that beach feeling. coastal vibe um yeah. cramped crowded um you know it's not overly 
glamorized, at least not real showy. Um, you know, the systems are kind of shoehorned into some very small spaces. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, the, 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 the goal is to just make great beer and, uh, and to, you know, really wow the customers. And so there's a lot of freedom to be a brewer at Pizzaport. Yeah. Yeah. I'm always, uh, the rotating IPAs, even just the, the, you know, year round stuff. I'm, I, you know, you always know that it's going to be consistent yeah, and rocks all quality. Beer, right? yeah. yeah. Um, so you, you said 2006 you left or 2005, we opened our doors here in January of 2006, and we started okay. doing construction here, so I left Pizzaport in December of 2005. Okay. Um, so I basically went off the payroll in that point. Um, and my partners, Vince and Gina and um, Carl today, um, Vince and Gina opened Pizzaport, so I was working for them for all those years, and then they became uh, the majority owners of this company as well. Okay. So, so I still, while, I, while I'm based here, I had a you know kind of a long-lasting relationship with the, uh, our sister company at this point, which is now Pizzaport and has been since we opened our doors. Okay. I was going to ask about that because I think a lot of people think pizza port and port are often the same. Yeah, and I've, I've gotten really good at my spiel. Um, we, we have the same interests, which is to make world-class beer. Um, we're majority owned by the same people, so they own the majority interest in both Port Brewing Lost Abbey and Pizza Port. Um, you know, we have a lot of differences of how we approach the brewing sides with the same goal. And we're sister companies, so we have we have our own staff, we have our own bank accounts and things like that. Um, but we're trying to work a little more collaboratively these days because it's gotten a lot more difficult to be uh, super independent with the way that, that, that spending is going. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, we, we, were, we put our doors, you know, we opened our doors, and the whole goal was to, to build this company to be its own standalone um, thing and to allow them to continue to do what they do. So when you're going, uh, you know, a different way from – you know, maybe same direction, but different path from Pizza Port. Um, was it was it more the focus, Lost Abbey and Port? Was it like what was the focus from the? Yeah, I think you know, I think started? we knew that the the West Coast sort of leanings of, of Port Brewing would do a good job of of um, being a, a a more volume play. You know, a little bit higher higher turnover kind of thing. And, you know, the West Coast styles, you know, Stone and Alpine and Green Flash and, you know, Ballast Point. And there's a lot of beer back then that was, you know, kind of similar in terms of that IPA San Diego kind of moniker. And then we really wanted the Abbey brand to, to grow. And we needed the Abbey brand to allow us to be very different. And that's where a lot of the focus over the years in terms of our differentiation has been on the Abbey side. Um, there's still a lot of same, same. Many of our, you know, our port brewing beers have, you know, a flavor that you'd find in other West Coast style beers. So it's, it's more on the Abbey side where we thought we'd build something very unique. What was it that got you kind of exploring the Belgian side, the styles, the, you know, obviously different than West Coast IPA? I just think that when the, you know, the very, very first couple of, you know, Belgian beers I had were so much of a departure from anything I'd ever tasted, seen, that they were each almost aha moments, you know, and and then, you know, you would get into having an Abbey Double, a Chimay Red, and then you'd have a you know, an, a, a wit beer and you would start going down this whole roll and then you'd land in sour beer land and nothing ever tasted the same. And it just opened my sort of interest, I think, in, in what could be next and what, um, what the possibilities were, you know, and there's, to me, I'm not a classically trained brewer. I'm not interested in Germanic brewing to the 10th of a 1000th and precision. I'm more interested in what flavor possibilities are, are available to us in, in an artistic sort of a way. And that's what really appealed to me about Belgian, Belgian expression. Okay. But then you do have port the, uh, you know, is that still 
I mean, is that like a thing that you, you know, styles that you enjoy or is it just oh absolutely you really know? yeah okay. no i mean i love i love our port brewing brands and i i drink more mongo than anything else in in, okay. in house and i you know mongo's our best-selling beer it counts for about 45 percent of all of our sales oh, wow. um, so it's a pretty pretty you know pretty forward-facing thing i didn't know mongo was that it, big that big yeah it's a big it's a big part of the portfolio um we, we always talk it's a little sneaky and kind of under the radar in that regard but uh you know, we're known for being Lost Abbey as a company, but there's a lot of things that we do very well that I don't think we get enough credit for. And certainly some of the port beers and, and Mongo specifically is one of those. Okay. And then Hop Concept. I always forget that Hop Concept is, is part us. of that. Where does that fit yeah, into everything? There was – I've lost track of time. So I think it's about a seven-year-old brand at this point. Um, and back, you know, when we looked around at that, we had already been making some – um, pretty classically styled beers like Wipeout um, and Mongo and Shark Attack and things that were pretty pretty well fixed. And then there became a movement for a lot of new IPA, and new IPA had fancy names and new new hopping techniques and things. And we just kind of decided that Hop Concept would be a place where we would build a brand. Um, and I'm not going to say it's only IPA, but it's certainly Hop Hop Forward, you know, the Hop Concept. And um, it's given us a platform for fairly tight cohesive beers it doesn't have a lot of new beers every year um and it just allows us to say these are kind of core core seasonal and and um and be predictable i think is pretty pretty important so uh yeah at a time when there needed to be new ipa it was a new ipa brand so it looked and felt new um and now that it's you know six or seven years old people are have very familiar with it um but in the same in the same way it's got to be it's not quite legacy but it's legacy to them and that you know they know what they're going to get Okay. Yeah, you said the like new IPA. I feel like some of the things like uh, Coronado, I would like Idiot IPA was a a big one for me. Um, you know, Islander if I was mm-hmm. feeling a little frisky. But, sure. Uh, and then Weekend Vibes came along. Weekend Vibes and Never Better and you know new branding. I think a little bit more modern. Technique a little bit process, less. Yeah. You know, a little bit less multi flavors that people yeah, it's, don't it's, like as much anymore. It's the, it's the IPA shift, and then, yeah. you know, where where do you live in that space, and what are you going to deliver against it? Um, yeah, it's been – the IPA space has gone from being, you know, it used to be caramel malts and really bitter and, you know, bracing, and, you know, it was like, you know, you kind of went hack when you drank IPA because it was – it was a you know it was an acquired taste, and now IPA is forty percent of forty five percent of all the beer, craft beer in terms of you know sales, and so IPA is kind of the moniker that it's a giant umbrella these days, and so mm-hmm. nearly everything has some kind of IPA ness to it, um, but they all don't look and taste like and feel like they used to. So it's very different in that regard. Yeah. Um, so yeah, hop concept. I always, I just think of the those rotating beers the. The freshness, no, citrus, yeah. yeah, yeah. So citrus and piney, tropical and juicy, and then dank yeah. and sticky. I always think yeah. of those, and I, again, just think like I know that I know that beer. I know what I'm going to get. Yeah, and that was when we built that brand, that that line of beers specifically. It was taste and smell, dank and sticky, tropical and juicy, citrus and piney. Um, very straightforward. Not you know, didn't really require a lot of thought. And we've always felt like even if the bartender had never had it, they could they could describe. Describe the beer to the customer. Yeah, read the read the label. Read the label. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes it is that stupid though. It is that simple. Yeah. There's you know, I mean, if you're talking about a bar that rotates and there's ten new beers on tap every week, it'd be really hard to keep track of those things. You know. So, yeah. You know, we wanted some authenticity and, and uh, you know simplicity for it. Yeah, I've spent enough time behind the bar and uh, 
It's like, well, what does that one taste like? I, I don't know. I haven't got to that it, one yet. It, I don't it just know. went on tap today, and I just I haven't been on shift for three days, and yeah. I, I really don't know. Yeah. But, yeah, and I mean that's where I think that's where everybody landed these days with getting splashes of things, and you know it, it doesn't necessarily speed up the process, right? Um, right? And I'm seeing I'm seeing a movement, you know, where there's some bars that are saying, yeah, we used to be heavy heavy rotators, and now we're we're getting back into stuff that doesn't rotate, but people drink because they're familiar with it, and there's something to be said for that that level of familiarity and like and knowing what you're getting. Um, and first and foremost, you have to be good. I mean, that's that's the issue, right? Yeah. But past that, then if you're good and people like it, then they should come back. And I'm pretty excited that people are starting to come back around on things. Yeah. Feels good. Yeah, I used to definitely be like, oh my god, there's so many beers to try. I gotta. I gotta take them all. Yeah. yeah, I gotta right? check them on Untapped and mm-hmm. get all the different flavors. And now I'm much more likely to just grab the same thing that I know is good, yeah. or or grab something simple. The the can artwork. Yeah, like a it maze, you. just trying to figure out what the style is. Yeah, I have a brand manager, and uh, you know, we would we would go to road trips and promote our you know go visit distributors and loves to go to cocktail bars, and and he's always he's all about what the bartender and the new cocktails and things, and half the time they're they're garbage, and I'm sitting next to him drinking a Negroni, just you know loving my life because it's really good cocktail, and uh, you know like half the time you get one and it's a home run and the other half it's a stinker and you're like well you know you're you're, you're two for four at one point and i'm four for four so you know yeah i feel pretty good about that <laughs> it's a pretty good ratio yeah um the other thing you guys are doing is the is it tiny bubbles is that the yeah. hard seltzer uh it's a actually a goza style beer but yeah it's got oh, okay um so my brand manager came to me a couple of years ago and said hey we really you know, everybody knows this as being Lost Abbey. There's a lot of um, sour beer in the market these days, specifically canned sour stuff and fruited. And could we get into an environment where we could have something that I could offer that isn't oak-aged and really super premium price point? And so um, we ended up buying the rights to that brand from my friend Eric um, and his family who started Hollister Brewing Company up in Goleta, up in Santa Barbara area. And uh, I loved the name. I thought the, the beer was exceptional. He was making basically a Goza-style beer long before anybody else in California really knew what they were doing. He was one of the first. And I loved the legacy of it. I loved that, you know, they, they really weren't interested in making it anymore. And so we bought the rights to the brand and then created the, the elements around it, um, which is Brutus Tea Bubbles, who's the mascot, um, and, and took the, the base recipe from just being an unfruited Goza to now having a, a rosé, which is raspberry, orange guava, and a key lime um, on top of the original brute flavor. So uh, it's been a fun project. Um, it's still still trying to find its legs. We launched it in COVID, and it hasn't been as easy to get it to the right amount of people on sampling levels and things like that. But it, the beers are really solid. Very okay. very proud of the way that they taste for sure. Does that does that brand fall in the uh, like the better for you? lower calorie kind of thing it's actually really tries to live in that space in a way that some don't um it's it is truly probiotic because it's um it's not a kettle sour so it's got live live cultures that's one of the things that we did it's very different about it is that we chose to put it on the sour side of our building and it lives and breathes so um yeah lower calorie lower residual sugar um it is wheat based you know that's versus being like a seltzer or something along those lines but um in the scheme of things it's a very very good for you drink Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out beer actually has a uh, some good things, some yeah nutrients, minerals. Yeah, I mean you get you get some great great things from live yeast. You get things from the lactobacillus. 
Um, you know, we're not using a lot of weird flavorings and we're not adjuncting it with a lot of extra sugar. So, you know, much, you know, living and breathing under 130 calories per serving, you know, we would like to get it to go lower, but we lose some of the flavor that we like. Um, it's a nice, it's a nice place to live for, it's a, it's a good change of pace. Yeah. That category I feel like is, has really taken off with, you know, the seltzers and the 99 calories or hundred calories or those things. And like the, the IPAs in that category, I just feel like are generally kind of watery and weak. Yeah. We also have a hard tea that we're producing. It's called Charisma. It's um, been mostly in-house. Um, it's 100% agave-based. Um, and that's been fun to work with because it is probably closer to being more in that 90 to 95, 110 calories. Um, you know, no residual sugar, really low glycemic index with the agave. Um, it's been a fun project. It's something we're still not really sure how it plays out in the market yet, but the flavors we've built around it are really fun and cool. And uh, just wait for the wait for the market to come to us on that because there's still a lot of people that are getting their feet into to some hard tea stuff post-seltzer, and I think it'll be cool to see. But it does really well in our tasting rooms. Yeah, I feel like the – I think the last – you know, big seltzer numbers were like, oh, seltzer's not still growing. It it dropped off a little bit. And yeah, and I think everybody knew it couldn't grow at those numbers anymore, but it's still a massive part of the category. Yeah. You know, it's still almost, it's nearly outpaced beer or at least craft beer, right? We got to a 12, 13 share and I think seltzer's pushing right at the back of it or has gone by us, but it's, it's incredible to think that something that didn't exist five, 10 years ago, you know, really could have that much traction. Yeah. It's not going anywhere. Yeah. But I mean, other alternatives for drinks, you know, there's Canned cocktails are obviously big, especially with cut water down here. Mm-hmm. And uh, Juneshine just came. Juneshine just came out with their sort of their their sort of sling at it. Um, okay. But yeah, I think everybody understands that there's there's a lot of different ways to put things in front of people that aren't beer, wine, or sp- true spirits. You know, they're they're derivatives, and how the category looks as as being derivative in the future is kind of interesting. Um, blended, yeah. if you will. I think of hard kombucha and and now hard tea you know there was the what twisted tea is mm-hmm. i know that's a, a big one with yeah boston beer owns that i believe they do um but i was at trader joe's the other day and looking at the beer and uh there's a whole section of the shelves that are just uh it was a little bit of cider but it was mostly i think kombucha and there's a whole another section that was canned cocktails and a yeah, lot beer's, of beer's getting squeezed in a lot of ways, which is, yeah. I mean, we've seen it coming. It's not, you know, you, you really have to put your head in the sand and not see how it's happening. Um, but the the, the, re, the real push is, is where where do we live as, as brewers? And, you know, there's a lot of talk that people keep saying, oh, we're now a beverage company or, we you know, we do these things. Um, for us, we have five different brands that we're making, and the range is mostly to two to kind of give our tasting rooms a wide footprint. You know, our, you know, we run 20 to 30 beers on tap at our tasting rooms. Um, great flavor, great experiences, great opportunity to um, sell into different areas. Um, and, then, and then we distribute some of those things as well. So, um, you know, we're still a pretty small brewing company by, by what most people think we are. Yeah. Uh, well, to that point, just walking back here, I was like, wow, this is a lot bigger than, uh, I was like, oh, there's the, you know, the, the silo out front with the signage and then we started walking back this and like holy shit we're still going we're still going yeah this building's too big for us right now um we know it we're working on our options um given the craziness that is cans these days 
Um, we're lucky in that we can store a bunch of them. We also have a bunch of storage for um, for pizza port here on site because uh, warehousing has become a very challenging thing. Um, so yeah, we're up to we're we're at forty thousand square feet. We probably at, at at our level of production should be closer to twenty. Um, but with the sour pieces and the and the hospitality footprint and the can needs and things, it's um, it's nice to have it, but it's an expense. It's very expensive in California to do that. Yeah. So you do have for the sour stuff and the non sour stuff. You do. Yeah, the building keep is the building separate. is separated. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's yeah. Uh, you can't afford to. We losing a lot as much product as you're making. We um, we used to run it without having a true sour side, where we would commingle it a little bit more. Um, yeah, it's we learned our lesson. Let's just let's, we'll just leave it. Do at you that. have even a separate brew system for no. doing sour stuff? No, okay. we 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 basically make wort. We we send it to um, the clean side, and then we tote it tote it down the hallway to the to the sour side where it gets inoculated and dealt with. So okay, yeah, so pretty pretty well separated okay um but yeah there's there's still there's still a little overlap you know we drive a forklift over to the sour side and i'm like i kind of lose my mind but i'm like that's just you know forklifts are inherently dirty to begin with so um well speaking of the brew house what how how big are you guys how many barrels you know in a good year i guess are you making so we're running a 30 barrel brew house um it's the original stone brewery building warehouse so this system was installed here in 1995 um, so it's been continuously operating uh, for 27 years Um, we go anywhere from single batch length of 30 barrels up to 180 barrels uh, in terms of tank sizes and uh, at our apex a few years ago we produced on a tax paid level just just under 15,000 barrels and last year we were back to about 8,900 um, the system really loves to run around 10, 12,000 barrels with respect to the amount of people and house and process and how much beer goes through. Um, but if we were to max out the space, 25,000 is probably the max. And that would be, you know, almost working every single day, um, things like that. But, you know, we're on a five day work week. Um, the brew side starts at five or six in the morning, goes till midnight kind of a thing. And, um, we run in anywhere from 12 to 15 brews per week and could go higher again. But, um, you know, right now the it's a good spot to be, but we're we're a ten thousand barrel a year brewery. Um, you know, when you think about some of the, you know, some of the beer going into oak barrels and and, and things like that. So you know, ten thousand is not a it's not a huge brewery, but most of the breweries in this country make less than a thousand barrels of beer. So yeah, it puts us in a weird spot. Yeah. Do you do you want to go bigger or like add another fermenter or? You good with where you No, are. I think I think we've reached a pretty good thing. I'm I'm pretty confident that the beer business has changed and growth is expensive and difficult. Um, the one thing that we have going in our favor is that most all of the equipment in our building is paid for. So if we wanted to go from ten thousand to fifteen thousand barrels, it would just be about people and bandwidth and, and you know expanding expanding within our space. We wouldn't need more copper, we wouldn't need more stainless, more concrete, things like that. Um, so no, I really don't want to get bigger in that regard. If anything, I'd like to see us get bigger with specific beers and get a little deeper in the market with, you know, like, whereas Mongo is a great selling beer. I'd like to have a second or third one of those. Um, but at the same time, I'm not, we're not, we're never going to be a 50,000 barrel a year brewery. It's just not, it's just not in our DNA with, with the things that we're doing. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Every time I see on social media or newsletters or whatever, you know, people dropping in new tanks, 
like, man, the last two years have been pretty yeah. rough. Is this uh, doesn't seem like the easiest thing to commit to. It's pretty interesting. Um, we chose to commit in the last year to building a satellite tasting room. Um, so that, that opened up down by the ballpark in San Diego. And, you know, that was a f- seven-figure project. And that that could have translated into all kinds of shiny stainless steel and things. But distribution away from California right now is really difficult and very expensive. Um, so, yeah, where you commit is important, but it also is what, what's, your, what's your reasoning. And we committed to building, you know, the, all of our tasting rooms are branded Lost Abbey. Um, and we committed to building more Lost Abbey. And I think there's a lot of room for that brand to continue to be incredibly forward-facing and hospitality-focused um, because the beers are unique and, it, and, they, and we have the best chance to be positioned to tell the story really simplistically. And are you, I would assume that you're still doing port beers at that new location. Oh, yeah. Each each satellite tasting room pours all of the beers okay. you know, up and down from the tea to, to tiny bubbles. I mean, it's a, okay. it is. It's um, There's 31 different beers on tap there. And the goal is to have a really uh, amazing, you know, tap list, some of which doesn't really rotate. Again, core beers, Mongo, Wipeout, High Tide, Devotion, Farmhouse, Lager, stuff like that. Um, but then other things that rotate through seasonally, um, like when Hop Concept beers are, you know, coming through seasonally. And and then even so much as you know barrel beers and things like that. So yeah, you can we can we can keep a tap list that's big and deep, pretty fresh with just um, new things coming through and bringing old things back from the from the cold box. Okay. Um, you mentioned rotation. How much? I, I definitely don't think of Lost Abbey Port. Um, probably more so with Pizza Port, but rotating beers is that. But you know, I'm not in your. I don't live in your home market. Sure. So uh, is there? How much rotation do you guys do with, especially with, I think, Lost Abbey? I think of that yeah, as more established. More brands. established for sure. Not a ton of rotation. Um, we don't have a pilot system here, so we don't spend a lot of time working on three-barrel batches and throwing things up. Um, it's got to be a little more problematic in terms of the way that some of the market wants to buy. Um, historically, a lot of our um, processes that re- sort of relate to um, seasonal and new were tied to barrel beer. Um, and so we would, you know, have a lot of those things, but we don't have a tremendous, you know, kind of rip at, um, here comes 13 new lost Abbey beers in 2023 and one a month and, you know, come get them. And there's, you know, 150 cases kinds of things. It's, it's, um, it's a little bit, a little bit more nuanced than that in the, in the scheme of things as a brand. Yeah. Certainly not chasing, you know, 18 new beers per year. Yeah. When you are looking for something new obviously like you, no pilot brewer you can't exactly uh, experiment real freely on 30 barrels or even half of that it's yeah it's a commitment yeah. when you're looking for something new or you have an idea you want to do something you know a little different how do you go about that two two ways two avenues um we do have a relationship with a brewery down the street in carlsbad called ruler brewing company okay. um, they run a 10 barrel brew house and that allows us some modicum of flexibility because they, we kind of have a, we essentially can use them as a contract facility. Um, so we can go down there and launch recipes at them and do things that we want to do. Um, they've been a big part of the tea project in terms of small batch brewing. Um, and I this, think they just expanded too, didn't they? They did, yeah. They just expanded and tw- they did twice. They expanded in their Carlsbad location um, and then picked off some more space here in, in San Marcos. Um and then the other way is that we just kind of build from our history. We have so many 
years of brewing, both from my background at, at Solana Beach, where I was on a seven-barrel system brewing pretty regularly, to just you know an enormous amount of beer that we've kicked through this system here, and that allows us to have to take pretty good swipes at things without needing a lot of piloting. Um, it's not the most perfect way of doing things, but there's a lot of confidence in being able to say, this is what we need, and, and we can hit those parameters based upon the, the time and, and energy on the deck that we have here. Okay. Do, are you, uh, with the barrel stuff, you know, obviously a lot of that is not up to you once you put it in a barrel. You know, there's you can control what you can control, but uh, is there, when you're doing something maybe new in a barrel, looking for something different you know working towards that idea but working with a barrel how how does that go well you've caught me on a good week or a bad week um we have dumped nearly a hundred oak barrels worth of beer this week um part of it was we moved into this building when we moved into the part of the building we were in earlier um back in in early 2018 and, and the process of moving some beer was not kind to uh, acetobacter and oxygen and things so we had a bunch of barrels that just really have not performed well um, the barrel then the barrel beer market hasn't really performed well there's a lot of breweries um, who built up and ramped up some strong barrel programs who are sitting on quite a bit of backstock um, so we're trying to be very intentional about about scaling down scaling back um, we have five photos on site. They make really brilliant beer, which is nice for creating stock. Um, and from those stocks, then we can go out to the barrel stacks and find unique things and call, call those two things together and make really interesting beers and then adjunct them as need be with fruits and spices and stuff to really make, um, some interesting, you know, and fun things, uh, small batch, 150 200 cases um so we can take some flyers at stuff that we have pretty pretty good sense of how they're going to behave um but for the most part it's uh it is still kind of a little bit of an alchemistic thing we're not really sure how everything's going to go um, but we try to take chances with beers in in the direction where we think and know they should work um, so not a lot of hugely experimental stuff going on back there a lot of you know meshing of things that were we were pretty good at and we know what's safe but there's not giant swings at like dumping tanks and tanks and tanks of things mm-hmm. now with the beers that you just dumped are you are you cutting losses and the barrels are going too or do you work with the barrels no we've actually determined that these barrels aren't salvageable They're, a lot of them ended up becoming very acetic and, and sort of vinegar driven and there's not really any reason to, to salvage that or try to salvage it you know you could fill it in a month you know 12 months from now um you would come back and you would have more vinegar potential yeah. so our it's a cut loss thing um and mostly it's a cut loss in our universe because the barrels um, have been paid for over the last few years they've gotten enough turns out of them um, and realistically we just don't need to be sitting on beer that doesn't have a home um, so the goal should be to have great great stacks of beer in small barrels have a great footprint with the with the fodor beers and then turn those things over so that you're really um you're at the right amount of beer okay yeah so those are on their way to becoming flower pots we we sold a bunch of them this week yeah yeah last the last three days have been very uh very interesting i, I put up a facebook post in marketplace and people have just been backing their trucks up and you know 25 and 35 bucks we've been just banging them out of here yeah so 
it's just it's kind of a spring cleaning it's it sucks it's cathartic it's the beer is just never it wasn't getting any better it wasn't going to get better and like let's just let's just clean house yeah just move on yeah Yeah. unfortunately that's just that's this you know if you if you if you've been in the oak business the oak beer business or the oak you know like there's a point where things just don't always go you they don't always go to plan yeah but don't try to make don't try to salvage it yeah and at a certain point it's when you're when you're getting multiple turns out of a barrel at what point do you you know depending on what was in that barrel to begin with whether it was whiskey or french wine or brand new barrel Mm -hmm. whatever uh you know i'm sure you have notebooks of different barrels and you know things where you know these barrels this barrel brings something different than other barrels yeah it's it's our our universe is kind of tied to you know we've been using this barrel and one of the things that steve our head brewer was talking about earlier in the week was you know we're dumping some low number barrels so everything in our universe is sequentially numbered so if we have a barrel in the 100s it was one of the first barrels that we've brought in and it's just always had that number so now we've had some barrels that were in the 300s that we dumped this week and it's you know it's been interesting to say okay we you know we got 10 years out of that one barrel which probably means it was turned over eight times you know um you know eight eight turns means it was making good beer good Mm -hmm. beer right it always got selected it always got used um that's a good thing. Uh, not a good thing is to have something that's in the 1500s or the 2000s and, you know, and it was had beer in it for three years and, it, you know, basically made beer one time. So there's some stuff that, that definitely didn't, you know, really amortize out the same way. But that's just part of the business is, you know, and from time to time, we just get bad barrels from wineries. I mean, you know, you, 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 you can't check every single you, barrel. You right? can't. And, you, and f- to be clear, I mean, I know for a fact there's some wineries that we just don't buy from anymore because we just didn't make good beer from from those barrels so you know while they might have been very favorably priced they cost us in the long run yeah is it is our wineries your your go-to for spent or maybe not spent but yeah formerly used barrels we have a lot of third and fourth kind of filled uh, french oak stuff mostly california brewery or california wineries um theoretically a lot of them sort of in southern california but we've bought you know from northern california and um, you know, there's there's spirit barrels that we buy from brokers, which are bourbon brandy, um, rum, tequila, you know, stuff like that. And uh, and then there's the French oak side, which historically has been, for us, mostly red wine, red wine oak, and typically French. Um, and again, third, fourth turns. So in their universe, pretty pretty oak neutral, but not necessarily oak neutral when you're talking about beer. Okay. You mentioned having footers. The are those uh, like from Belgium or? No, they actually, they're the, the, there's five of them. Um, two are the same and three are, are there's two, a set of two and a set of three. Um, the front two, which are a little bit bigger, they're 110 barrels each. They came out of uh, Santa Rosa, Rome, essentially right down the street from Russian River, from a place called Hannah. Uh, they were Pinot Noir, um, so they're really cool, French oak, uh, beautiful. And then we ended up with a set of three 85-barrel tanks. I believe they were French oak as well different style um, in terms of how they're made they're more upright and those came from the heights winery up in napa and they were making cabernet okay Um, so yeah five five giant tanks it's a lot of liquid i think i calculated that it would be in the neighborhood of like i don't know i think it was like 600 oak barrels worth of worth of beer or you know in them um so it's a lot of it's a lot of volume without um a lot of variability. Yeah. 
what was that like getting them from Northern California to Southern California? You know, we hired a rigging company both times, so we didn't have to do a ton of it. That being said, where they're currently located is not where they landed originally. We had them in another warehouse, so we had to actually, um, they were filled and we were using them, and then they had to be emptied, tilted on their sides, tipped back up, and then refilled. So they're in their second. Were they ever disassembled? No, never disassembled. Okay. No, no, just put on the trucks driven down here and then but nothing like that not 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 a cooper on site rebuilding them thank god it's okay a, it's a real pain in the ass yeah i i had that book uh wood and beer and was reading through the all the process that goes into to turn when on. you have to tear them apart and put yeah. them back together like wow this is it's serious no wonder this is a and it's an old world career. it's an old world thing right yeah yeah, yeah. No, we've been lucky. You know, knock on the bottom side of the table, but um, our footers are making really nice beer, and it's been a, you know, as much as we're dumping those old barrels. One of the reasons we're dumping uh, so many old barrels is that we just started making really nice beer in the footers, and therefore we didn't need some of those other barrels, and that's why that beer kind of went bad. Is we just held it too long, and we didn't need it. So you know, somewhere in there, we just we're, we're right in the ship. You know, right sizing yeah. the ship. When you are using beer from those footers. Are you, you know, at once emptying them and, or are you like pulling what you need? Yeah, there's a couple of different of ways that we, we go after it. Um, you know, we've taken half of a tank out and then maybe we had a different fodder um, that wasn't uh, performing as well. And we would pull beer from that and top that one back up because we had a great mother culture going or um, when we had to move them. Uh, we emptied foders into oak barrels, so we bought a bunch of oak barrels to to, to basically collect that liquid so that we wouldn't, you know, lose that. Um, there isn't a, a single way we're doing it necessarily. Um, there, we have emptied a couple and then refilled them with water to hold them and stuff like that, but um, probably three or four different ways that they're being being used um, in terms of volume in and volume back in. Okay. So um, at no point do we need all five foders in any one calendar year to do what we're doing. So it's not a matter of just draining them and then waiting a year for all five of them to come back online. They're all kind of in varying states of, of acidity and time. Okay. When you're uh, um, going to blend beers, whether it's footers or, or especially with barrels, do you have, I, I mean, like you said, numbered barrels, but do you have barrels where you're like, yeah, I know that these specific barrels are going to be whatever beer you're putting together yeah so in in the scheme of things there's two real strong ways that we approach the the blending or the sour side one is is we make beers like red poppy or frambois cuvee um, where they are their their unique and own base beer so red poppy frambois and cuvee all have different base elements to to how they're produced Um, so when they go into the barrel they're tagged red poppy they're tagged frambois and then there's a bunch of barrels out there that are just what we essentially anoint as yellow sour. Um, but there's a couple of different yellow sour base beers that we have over the years kind of come to use. So they just go into the barrels. There's a, there's a spontaneously fermented one. There's a higher strength one that used to be our avant-garde at 7%. Um, we put in lager beer that's lower ABV. Um, there's a high wheat one, which is more like a lambic base. So there's a few different yellow base things that are put out into the barrels and then when it becomes time to blend with them they they behave a little differently so we can go find elements in that in that space Um, but to say 
those three beers and they're the brown ones cuvee red poppy frambois have a brown a brown fruited base so two cherry beers and a raspberry beer and then the blonde sours which might catch fruit um, peaches nectarines apricots stuff like that um, and, and even cherries and raspberries later um, different different methodologies but there's only there's only really three beers in the sour stack um, that are beer specific to poppy frambois and, and cuvee okay so if you label a beer or a, a barrel, you know, you, this is this is going to be for, you know, the next red poppy or, you know, however many years mm-hmm. you're planning something. Um, but that barrel, you know, maybe you come back to it after however long you're waiting on it and it's not there. It's just not, you know, what you want. Is it, are you, do you try and blend something else in that's going to work that still be... Yeah, there's a couple of couple of opportunities with that. One is, um, so for the most part, um, red poppy cuvee and frambois are about twelve to fifteen month beers. They really don't, they really don't hang out much longer. So we have kind of a, a generality here that if a beer doesn't really taste good after eighteen months, it's probably not going to make the cut. Um, the exception would be stuff like Duck Duck, where we have some three year old beer, um, and those ones are purposely held back or they're moved towards that point. Um, but we have found that at about 18 months, it's kind of a, a diminishing return. You, you know, if it, if it hasn't sort of perked up and become something exceptional by then, what's the likelihood that, you know, you're going to rest it for another two years or another year and a half and it's going to be better. Um, and in that year and a half, if it doesn't get better, you just blew 18 months of something that could have gotten better. So we, and, you know, we try to, to not have things that hang out for too long. Um, that being said, it's not that simple. So sometimes stuff can hang out longer but it doesn't really improve um so when we make beers now we're trying to time the amount of um, aging and the needs so what what are we going to make next year and how much yellow base beer yellow sour base beer do we need is it going to be a peach beer is there going to be an apricot beer is there going to be something else you know are we going to go back to like we did cable car creek this past year we did peach afternoon um you know the 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 thing is is how much how much base stock do we need and where is it going to come from and how, you know what time of of aging does it need how how much oak you know do we need to kiss it with or otherwise um, and the the beauty of it is is that a lot of those things can be found in the fodor and then added to very simplistically if we find we have this great fodor and we only need 600 gallons and to make the beer really unique i need to go find five or six oak barrels we have plenty of those things to marry those together but i've only really depleted myself by about 800 gallons which in our universe is not a ton of beer right <clears throat> so you did uh you guys did just do uh, a duck duck goose I, I don't know a couple weeks ago a month ago uh the pickup was two weeks ago yeah okay. so yeah let's just say you know early april yeah so when you're when you're working through those beers um that are in barrels and you're at 12 months and you're uh when when you're planning for the next duck duck goose and you need that you know something that's three years and it's at 12 months and you're like well it's you know it's okay i don't know if this is going to work out Mm -hmm. for another two years where where does it come from yeah where's the yeah how do you i guess how do you plan or try to and i think that's probably why we're at where we are today or this week where we've had a lot of beer that we just dumped um because we were holding some stuff specifically for duck or at least in our heads we were holding it because a lot of what just got dumped was three and four years old 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there was probably this sense that we need to hold some, we need to hold on to those to see if when it comes time for duck, whether they've come around enough to be used or otherwise. Um, and that wasn't a need in our universe. We had enough volume with the three-year-old barrels that we had, um, the two-year-olds and stuff like that to get home on it. So, um, it's never been a problem because if you're holding enough of it, then you'll find it. Um, you know, I think when we talked about that 18 months, it's the goal is to not hold something that couldn't improve or it wouldn't be improving. So if you end up holding too much 18 month old beer, hoping it gets better for three years, then you're going to be left holding bad beer. So how much do we need is, is a thing. We also haven't really expanded the amount of duck that we've made in the last three bottlings. Um, so it doesn't require a ton. It's not like we're going to go, okay, we just sat down, we just had the release, and next year or next next duck release we're going to make three times and then have to go put away a lot more three-year-old beer. Um, you know, what we're making, the amount of duck I think that the market really wants, and therefore what we have been doing with regard to volume seems to be a good number. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing in three years, much less how you plan a barrel-aged beer for that long. But I, I would say that we don't. Um, only in so much as that we aren't, you know, we're not putting 30 barrels away this year for that, but we know that there's things in our universe, you know, right now we might have to put, we might have to put at least a whole batch of something away to be three years old um, because we've dumped so much three-year-old beer or, you know, this, this culling that we're doing right now is going to, it's going to thin the herd a little bit. Um, but we have some time to, to get home on that. And there are still some things in the stacks that are older um, that, that should mature really well. Um, you've mentioned numbers for barrels and you know at certain points you barrels you know get the boot they're yeah they're spent they're they didn't work out uh how many barrels do you actually have on site i standardly say we have about a thousand it's probably closer to 800 right now um because our our whiskey side has come down so much um when it's all said and done i expect before the end of may or june we'll probably be north of 500 but under under six um but in the scheme of things with a bunch of those barrels being good versus you know having 800 that are you know 300 of them being really bad or otherwise um you know we're going to manage the program a lot tighter now we had to we had to ramp up six years ago or so just to try to keep up with some of the demand that was going on Um, but the market doesn't have that level of demand anymore so we we need to come back to having the right amount of it around. And those conversations will come up because uh, square footage is expensive. Um, and then pouring beer down the drain is expensive, you know. So, um, yeah, I think I think we'll be fine. Again, I, I like the fact now that we have the photos to start with because they're so much more predictable. And then we can go back and say, okay, maybe we need two batches of, of you know, heavy wheat. We need one batch of lager and one, you know, two two batches of spontaneous at any given point or each – year there needs to be two different spontaneous brews going on um because sometimes they, you know they, they they mature at different rates and then you can you can go from there um i did want to say that it was one of the most interesting things about um this this spring cleaning we're doing is that one of the original um barrels from isabel proximus got rotated out on this on this role, um, which I was kind of su- not surprised by in the, in the scheme of that, it's, you know, it's been a long time since, you know, the barrels were, were dumped in 2008. So um, that barrel has been refilled many, many times over. Um, but it was just on a, on a shed of tear to see a barrel that had been in the, in the house that long um, kind of find its way out. And I don't know, to be clear, how many barrels 
from that still exist or otherwise i just know that it had the original tape on it and and it was uh it was sent packing so one one less isabel barrel in the world when you're doing the the bourbon barrel stuff are you getting generally the same amount of use out of them as the red wine stuff that's we're, on the sour side. we're a one and done typically when With it comes bourbon. to spir- spirit spirit things specifically okay. yeah we just there's a real diminishing return on it um so we're we're uh put it in there one time and then l- let it roll um haven't had a lot of success with secondary fill stuff and just realistically it's a lot harder on a microbial level to to have you know ensure the purity of the beer and things so um yeah we're, we're these days we're more or less a one and done um every so often we find reasons but um yeah one and done okay um and you mentioned spontaneous beers i didn't know that you guys are doing don't have a cool ship but we have a process that we've we've built over time and we don't release currently anything that is spontaneous so we're not kicking out a a beer that that went through that process it's just in the stacks and it's become part of our repertoire it's part of our blending process Um, you know you could think of it like salt or seasonings and things but right now we don't have a specific purely spontaneous beer that we produce in package format so okay it's part of the it's part of the basis and the and the, the chef's table but not it's not a singular thing right and even if you wanted probably be uh quite a few months before you're doing that again as we head into summer yeah i don't it's i was it's kind of funny i wish that the, the bubbles over my head don't go off as i'm sitting here but i was i was wondering how many batches of spontaneous we've done in the last six months as we were talking about sort of you know rotating barrels out and things um and and i don't know when the last time we actually put a spontaneous brew in the system so i have to go back and look at that and you're right we're getting we're getting dangerously close to that being a bad time to do that especially in southern california right yeah i think uh i think i saw allagash did one pretty recently um or at least you know said it on their social media and Mm -hmm. like there's out out here it's not happening right now yeah it's uh it's all we can do and the one thing that's that, that we control is um, we could knock out at a colder temperature and kind of try to you know a temper it um but you know when it when it goes from 65 to 90 you know when the, the swings can be pretty pretty dramatic and it's you know it's uh it's concerning to say the least yeah but i suspect we'll probably land on a once we get back towards november december i mean even november here in san diego you can have some 90 degree days um so we'll probably you know look at it and say you know we, and we do we, we we pay attention to the weather um, you know, but making a run at it and just trying to get, I, I suspect that, you know, we'll have a, a batch or two in the fall, but you know, for us, a 30 barrel batch at that gravity yields 16 or 18 oak barrels. I think I can't remember exactly what it is. It might be 14, 15, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a pretty small amount of beer when it's all said and done, like barrel wise, oak barrel wise, mm-hmm. um, but volumetrically and, you know, given, given what we're doing, it's, it's still a pretty good chunk of beer. Yeah. Well, I'm definitely out of questions, and we're out of beer, so I think that's a good we've time. Done, to, we've done our we've done our damage. Yeah, I think it's a good time to wrap it up. Perfect. But yeah, thanks for taking the time. Awesome. And, uh, this is this is a, a cool experience to be, you know, behind the curtain. But you are, we are in the yeah, we're in the belly of the beast right yeah. now for sure. All right, I hope you enjoyed that one. Thank you to Tommy Arthur for the time, the hospitality. It was well worth the trip to San Marcos from Oceanside. Uh, And I would highly recommend a trip to the Lost Abbey if you're in the area. Don't sleep on that Chuck-style Pilsner either. Noble Intentions. I think that's what it's called. 
that thing is damn tasty. Anyway, this was a, a really fun one for me, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, I'm not always the biggest fan of some Belgian styles, but there's no denying that Lost Abbey has had a pretty big impact in American craft beer, uh, and it was pretty fun to see a place as influential as the Lost Abbey is and has been for well over, I'd say well over 10 years, close to 15 years. Yeah, on the way out here, I uh, just want to say thank you to the Hopped Up Network, which the Beer Truth Podcast is a member of. Check out other craft beer related podcasts there, uh, other topics too, but all revolve around craft beer. There's a pretty good number of them. For this show, don't forget to follow on Instagram and Facebook at beertruth.podcast. Uh, it kills my soul a little bit every time I have to say this, but that's what helps. So you can also subscribe on your favorite platform, uh, then you'll get automatic downloads, uh, which are few and far between right now, but I promise there are, uh, there are more coming. Uh, even better, leave a review on said favorite podcast platform, because I'm trying to achieve that lifelong goal of becoming a craft beer podcast influencer. Been dreaming of it since I was a wee lad. All right, enough shenanigans. That's it for this one. Uh, until the next episode, which is soon, I promise. The interview's already been done. Thanks for listening. Cheers.